Welcome to the Breakwater Podcast. I am Samantha, the Drug-Free Communities Grant Coordinator for Breakwater and your host for this episode. We had several requests to do an episode on drug courts and diversion programs, along with the differences between legalizing substances or decriminalizing substances, especially after the 2020 election and we saw Oregon take some big changes with how they handle personal use drugs. We sat down with Winnebago County District Attorney Christian Gossett to understand how legalization and decriminalization are different, what's up in Oregon, and how all of this looks in Winnebago County, Wisconsin. One thing is clear and consistent across all of our discussions and topics on this podcast so far. Regardless of the situation or specific substance, it is important to talk to your kids about alcohol, tobacco, and other drugs from an early age. If you're looking for resources or ideas on how to start that conversation, or even what an age-appropriate conversation about drugs looks like, visit our resources page at www.breakwaterwi.org. We have a resource page for parents, guardians, youth, educators, and more. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast wherever you're listening now, share with friends, and let us know what you think. D.A. Gossett is up next. Would you mind taking a moment to introduce yourself to our listeners and sharing a little bit about who you are and what you do? Uh, Certainly. Uh, My name is Christian Gassett. I'm the district attorney in Winnebago County, Wisconsin. I've been the district attorney here since 2007. Before that, I was an assistant district attorney um, in both Winnebago County as well as Waukesha County, Wisconsin. Um, I've been a prosecutor since graduating from the University of Wisconsin Law School. Before going to law school, I had also uh, been certified as a police officer and worked for a short time as a police officer. Um, and before that, I, I worked in manufacturing. Um, and my original life plan was to be a philosophy professor. Um, and somehow or another, I, I ended up here. So it's been a, a circuitous route. Well, I'm glad to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day. We wanted to do an interview with you to learn more about drug courts and other programs that provide treatment opportunities or alternative consequences to drug-related offenses. Can you share some information, maybe some historical context on drug courts or other programs that offer treatment options for drug-related offenses instead of jail or prison time? Uh, yeah, and uh, and maybe we could even go a little bit farther back, um, if uh, that's okay, and talk a little bit about why do we even have this issue in the criminal justice yeah. system? Um, and uh, and I think it's important for people to understand that you know we haven't always been where we are as a country with drug issues and with incarceration problems that that um, reflect today's numbers. So if we go back, I, I think drugs have been illegal in this country for a little over a hundred years, um, and and before that they they by and large weren't. Um, and so it's a fairly um, recent development, and uh, it was fine, I think, in the criminal justice system for many, many years, if not decades, um, until we got to the, about 1968, and uh, Richard Nixon decided to declare a war 
on crime. Um, and when he declared that war on crime, he specifically targeted um, social services as you know problems. Um, so he wanted the criminal justice system to step up and solve all of those problems. Um, and all of a sudden, mental health and addiction issues became criminal justice problems. Um, and then during the Reagan era, um, of course, we engaged in the war on drugs. Um, and, uh, you know, in retrospect, we, we should probably pause before we declare war on ourselves. Um, uh, but uh, at the time, it, it sounded like a good plan. Um, and, and certainly crime was rising, um, serious crime was rising, and it appeared to be linked to drug trafficking and things of that sort. Um, and so we, we got tough on, on drugs in particular. And, you know, now we're sitting here in uh, the land of the free, and we have the highest incarceration rate in the world. Um, nobody's even close to the United States. Um, uh, we incarcerate around 700 um, individuals per 100,000. Oh, wow. Um, in Wisconsin, we're at uh, 676 per 100,000 individuals. And when we look at um, countries like Canada, they're at about 114. Uh, most of the European Union is, um, uh, you know, in the 100 range, uh, somewhere between about 70 to 140 or so um, people per 100,000 incarcerated. And this creates a lot of problems. Um, you know, some of the things that we've learned over the years is the criminal justice system and incarceration does not solve addiction issues. Um, putting people in a, a prison cell or a jail cell also does not seem to cure their addiction issues. Um, so it turns out that incarceration doesn't fix mental health or addiction issues, uh, but it costs a lot of money, um, and it disrupts a lot of lives. Um, and uh, even from a, a disruption of life standpoint, before we get to convictions, um, we have uh, gotten to the point where right now, by the age of 23, 30% of Americans will have been arrested, and that includes almost 50% of black males and 40% uh, of white males. And in 2016, there were 10.6 million arrests. Only 4.83% uh, of those arrests were for violent crimes. Uh, a lot of this is coming down to arrests for drug offenses, uh, simple possessions, things of that sort. Um, but if we took the uh, number of people in America who have been arrested, have an arrest record, and put them in their own country, that would be the 18th largest country in the world. Oh, my goodness. Out of the 195 countries that are out there. Um, and so all of this leads up to the last uh, couple decades here of people going, what the heck have we done? Yeah. Um, you know, we are financially destroying our country. We're destroying the future of a lot of young people. Um, and, and maybe we're getting this wrong. Um, so that brings us to you know, after the year 2000. And in Winnebago County, it was around 2005 when we uh, brought a drug court here um, and started down that road of trying to find a different way to address some of these issues. And um, so the, the drug court came in 2005. After that, um, I got elected in 2006, took over the DA's office in 2007, um, shortly after that, we, we began uh, introducing a series of uh, diversion programs, alternatives to incarceration, and uh, we focused primarily on addiction issues and uh, diverting people. And instead of putting them in jail, um, in Winnebago County, the average length of a jail stay is 18 days. Um, and so from a, the standpoint of a recurring problem like addiction or mental health, taking somebody off the streets for 18 days 
really doesn't solve the problem for anybody. It might eliminate a nuisance for 18 days, but then they're back on the street again. Um, and for simple possession of things like THC or cocaine, um, a lot of those people weren't going to jail at all. And if they were on probation, uh, there weren't enough resources. Again, we're tapped out as a nation and as a state in correctional costs. So the, there just weren't the services available to actually address the um, addiction issues. So the idea was let's let's start getting people out of the criminal justice system and essentially force them into treatment scenarios and see if we can produce a, a better outcome for those individuals. When it comes to diversion programs in, in Winnebago County, how is that looking now? What offenses are, are typically captured in a drug court, or does it matter which substance is involved? Uh, yeah, um, a great question because we, we have, uh, as I indicated, a drug court. Um, and the drug, so if, I guess if we start at the lowest level, if we have somebody, a uh, younger offender, um, uh, that's another issue that we have is, you know, a lot of criminal activity is engaged in by younger people. Um, and in Wisconsin, you are considered an adult for the criminal justice system at the age of 17. Um, we know that brain development usually uh, finalizes uh, somewhere around 24, 26 years of age, and that 17 to 26-year-old demographic is where we see a lot of people entering into the criminal justice system, you know, as they're still completing growing up and <laughs> becoming <laughs> responsible adults. Um, and, and so the, uh, the interdiction strategies that we have now, uh, so our alternative and diversion programs for simple possession are, are usually either younger people, people without prior records or limited prior records. They're really the low level offenders. Okay. Um, and, um, you know, so if you have a 17 year old who gets caught with marijuana, they are probably getting diverted. Um, you know, we're, we're not going to give them a criminal conviction, take away their uh, federal college funding um, that they were hoping to get give them a criminal record for the rest of their life. Instead, they're probably going to be diverted, and it's going to be a low-level diversion where they um, oversee their own rehabilitation, essentially. We give them a program they have to complete, so they have to go and, and complete an alcohol or other drug assessment. They have to follow through with the treatment recommendations from that program, and they're randomly tested, and they have to have six months of consecutive clean time. Um, if, they're, if they uh, have a dirty test somewhere in the middle, we'll start it over. Their program fees go up then, um, but the person covers the cost of the program themselves. Um, if they successfully complete it, they show us that they have addressed you know, uh, their addiction issues, talked to counselors about it, and have shown us that they can stay clean for six months. Uh, we either don't charge the case or we dismiss it if it was charged, so they don't have a criminal conviction. Um, and... We have a, a couple different versions of that type of programming, depending on the audience that we're talking about at that point in time. Uh, but that program has been in place um, in a couple different versions over the years. It was also studied um, by economists at the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh. They're, they produced a, a white paper on it. And what they found was by diverting people out of the criminal justice system and addressing the um, addiction issue or the drug issue itself as opposed to throwing them in jail or putting them on probation or even just giving them a fine and having them pay the fine, um, we reduced recidivism by 17%. Wow. Um, and uh, on top of that, it, it costs the taxpayers virtually nothing. Um, you know, when you send somebody through the criminal justice system, 
minimal cost is going to be around $1,500 to the taxpayers. Probably you're talking closer to about $2,500. I think people forget about how expensive it is. You know, if you send somebody to court, you're talking about a prosecutor, a paralegal who works with them. You're talking about a legal clerk who's setting up files and things of that sort. You're talking about a judge, a judicial assistant, a bailiff, a court reporter, um, quite often a, a public defender. You know, and the taxpayers are footing the bill for all of that. That adds um, up quick. It adds up very fast, and, and that's part of the problem that Wisconsin, as well as the the U.S. overall, is facing. And of course. Uh, finances drive a lot of change. It's finances or war. Um, so our, our war on drugs is bankrupting us. <laughs> so now that we're, now that we can't afford it anymore, um, you know, we're reassessing the way to do it. And in fact, uh, one of the stats that I often uh, point out to people is that in Wisconsin, we now spend more taxpayer money on corrections than we do the UW system. That is bananas. Yes, it is. Oh, my goodness. If you're trying to build a, a positive uh, workforce, a positive community, and you're trying to invest in your people, I don't think we could get it any more wrong if we tried. Wow. So can you share an example of a drug-related offense that wouldn't qualify or wouldn't be considered for a diversion program? Sure. When we get to the uh, drugs like heroin, uh, methamphetamine, the ones that are killing people, um, you know, when, when we look around... I, my understanding is we just had 81,000 overdose deaths um, uh, last year or in 2019. I can't remember which year that was for, but um, you know, we beat our previous record that I think was 72,000. Um, so the, the more addictive drugs, the drugs that are killing people, um, those are the ones that don't qualify for diversions, but those are the ones that can end up in a drug court. And so when they, when they go to a drug court, now there's a higher level of uh, supervision. So these are people who have already been prosecuted, They've been convicted. Uh, they're placed on probation, post-conviction, of course. And as a condition of probation, they have to engage in uh, successfully drug court. And in drug court, they have to go to treatment so many times a week. Um, and there's, there's phases of the program. So they have to come to court um, more frequently in the first phase. And they go through, I believe, three phases. And then eventually, when they've been uh, clean and, and they've shown that they can... Uh, stay clean and get their lives in order with a lot of support from a lot of other entities, um, then they're able to graduate from drug court and uh, get back out into society. And there's drug courts around the country. And, uh, you know, and it's another idea of forced treatment. Um, and of course, there, historically, there used to be a belief that you couldn't force treatment. It wasn't effective. You had to wait till somebody wanted to engage in treatment. Um, but that myth has been debunked over and over again. Um, and uh, what we found is that uh, drug courts are at least as effective as traditional sentencing. Um, some studies are showing they're more effective, um, but they cost taxpayers half as much money. Um, and so for every uh, dollar that you spend on a drug court, you're saving $2 in the long run. Um, those costs, to the best of my knowledge, don't take into consideration things like when you get somebody back in the workforce, now they're also paying taxes. Um, uh, you know, if you incarcerate somebody for 30 years and then bring them out, not only did they not pay taxes all those years and they cost us uh, thirty dollars to $45,000 a year to incarcerate them, but now we also have to pay for them in retirement because they didn't earn anything to, to cover their retirement. So uh, there's so many different costs and collateral costs that people don't uh, think about. And those uh, figures, I don't believe, take any of those collateral costs into consideration. But 
at the federal level, um, uh, corrections at the federal level, I believe, cost taxpayers $80 billion per year, mm-hmm. but the collateral costs are about $100 billion a year uh, for the industries that support all of that. Um, and uh, so it, we sometimes forget that that's just part of the, the problem here. That's part of the picture. So, but the, those, uh, so the people with the, using the harder core drugs, the more addictive and, and the more fatal drugs, are uh, more likely to end up in drug court or prison. And how do the programs like MCAP up in Menasha or LEAP in Oshkosh, how do those programs roll into the diversion or drug pro- court programs? So right now they're all disconnected. Um, and in Winnebago County, we've been uh, working to uh, start a connect program, it's called. Um, and uh, we've, uh, the county board has been working with us to, to help us get this going, but the pandemic slowed us down. Um, but the uh, programs that law enforcement is utilizing are, are direct referrals. So they can refer somebody, you know, essentially a warm handoff is how it's described, take somebody to treatment instead of to jail um, if they want treatment. And then from the prosecution standpoint, when we have a case, we can divert people or we can you know, prosecute people, convict them, and send them to drug court in addition to the traditional um, sentencing structures. And what we're hoping to do with the CONNECT program is start to link all of these. There's a lot of stigma still surrounding medication-assisted treatment, and is it trading one substance for another substance? But there's also a lot of evidence and studies out there showing that it is, the, in some cases, the best solution for opiate addiction. So does how does MAT work with drug court programs? Is it considered an acceptable treatment, or is it not? Yeah, so in our drug court program... Um, you know, I always appreciate when, when criminal justice system actors and, and politicians are willing to learn. Um, and, um, and in our drug court program, we did not allow medication-assisted treatment initially. We now do. In the 2020 election, we saw Oregon decriminalize several substances. The articles that I read described it as a means to reduce stigma and get those in need into treatment programs instead of jails or prisons. Can you talk a little bit about decriminalization? Is it the same as legalization? Are there differences? A lot of times decriminalization and legalization are used interchangeably. Yeah, they often are, and they are very different. If we look at alcohol... Uh, alcohol is not criminal, possessing alcohol. If you are under 21, possessing alcohol is illegal, but it's not criminal. Okay. Um, so, uh, you know, if something is illegal, you, you can't do it, but that doesn't mean that you're going to be subject to criminal penalties. Um, you know, for example, a parking violation or a speeding ticket, you know, you don't go to jail, um, for parking illegally, you, you get a forfeiture because it's illegal, but it's not criminal. It's a, it's a forfeiture matter. It's a civil matter. Um, and uh, so, you know, when we separate out civil and criminal, if you decriminalize drugs, that doesn't mean that you can legally possess them, but it means that you won't be arrested and incarcerated for it. Take a, um, a 20-year-old walking down the road with a beer, you know, they could be fined um, and the beer would be taken away from them, uh, but they wouldn't be arrested and taken to jail. They wouldn't end up with a criminal record. Um, that same 20-year-old walking down the street and they have a joint on them, um, they can be arrested, they can be incarcerated. That's been part of the debate uh, with, the, with the drug issue, especially uh, THC. Um, Oregon has gone a lot farther, and I applaud their efforts, and, and I'll explain why in a little bit here. But um, when we talk about THC, there seems to be a mixture of legalizing it for medical use, 
legalizing it for recreational use and decriminalizing it. So decriminalizing it would uh, take away some of these arrest numbers that we're talking about. Sure. Um, and um, I, I pulled the numbers, and I, I can't remember exactly. It was oh, uh, 40, let's see, in 2017, 1.63 million people were arrested for drugs. Uh, 40% of those, about 600,000, were for marijuana um, possession. Uh, that's a lot of arrests. That's a a um, crazy amount, yeah. Yeah, and, and again, uh, when you start thinking about it as a taxpayer, you're paying for that officer to arrest that person, to transport that person. You're paying for a, a jailer to book that person in. You're paying for jailers to supervise. You're paying to house them and feed them. You're paying for a prosecutor to review that matter, make a charging decision. Um, you know, it, it's a ridiculous amount of money. By decriminalizing, none of those arrests would take place. The beliefs are changing, and uh, interestingly in Wisconsin, the criminal justice system, I, I think, is seeing the reductions and seeing the changes in um, attitudes towards marijuana and prosecution mm -hmm. of marijuana much faster than legislators are. Part of the reason for that, of course, is now Wisconsin is surrounded by uh, states and even another country that have all legalized marijuana in some form. Um, and to me, it's not as simple as should marijuana be illegal or not. Um, there's also a bigger question. Should people in Wisconsin become convicted criminals for an offense that they would not, that the people in Illinois and Minnesota and Iowa and Michigan and Canada will not be, become convicted criminals for? Um, you know, it's a global economy. Yeah. Um, you know, as our young people are, are in college, coming through college and looking for jobs, I, I know lots of people in the city of Oshkosh and in Winnebago County who work for employers in other states, um, uh, some even in other countries. Um, you know, how many jobs are we going to take away or prospective jobs are we going to take away from our own citizens in Wisconsin because we make it a crime here? And, you know, instead that job will go to the young person from Illinois or Minnesota who may have engaged in the exact same activity, but their state decided not to make them a criminal over it. So it's not even as simple as should it be legal or illegal. Um, it, it, there's a bigger societal question there that I, I think uh, criminal justice system actors are more inclined to see. We, we see the consequences of what happens to people when they come through and, um, you know, for a lot of people, it's just a, an issue of rhetoric. Um, should marijuana be legal or not? I think really what they want to know is should people use marijuana or not? And, and the answer is no. Uh, I, I don't think there's any experts out there that, other than for medical reasons that would say yes. You know, but realistically, should people use alcohol? No. Should they smoke cigarettes? No. You know, 480,000 people per year die smoking cigarettes, 95,000 people per year die from uh, using alcohol, or up to 81,000 dying using opioids, they don't even record marijuana. How would legalization change the way marijuana is handled from a law enforcement standpoint right now? Based on everything that you're saying, where a lot of it is officer discretion, um, it doesn't sound like it would change a whole lot. Well, so I think that it it depends. So if it's legalized, then there's not even a citation for it. There's also, as part of regulation and laws, you know, so you can, as an adult, you can consume alcohol, um, but only to a certain extent if you're going to operate a motor vehicle. Um, you know, and uh, some of the irony in, in Wisconsin's resistance to legalize marijuana, uh, 
you know, we talk about, then you'll have increased incidents of impaired driving. Um, and I was a prosecutor when Wisconsin very stubbornly waited till the very last day before they lost federal funding for highways to lower the, the blood alcohol concentration limit from 0 0.10 to 0 0.08. Um, and, uh, and the concerns were things like lost revenues, you know, for bars and restaurants if people consumed less alcohol, um, less tax <laughs> collections, things of that sort. Um, you know, so uh, now... Uh, here we are, we talk about the collateral consequences of legalizing marijuana, and they're legitimate, and they're real. Um, you know, when Colorado first uh, legalized recreational marijuana, my suggestion and what I told everybody that wanted to hear my opinion about it was, that's great, they should do that in Colorado, we should wait and watch. Um, let's see how this plays out and let's learn from them. Um, and now there's lots of examples, and, and there's, I think, a lot that can be gleaned from what they've done. So, you know... We sell alcohol, and alcohol gets in the hands of younger people, and people consume alcohol to excess and operate motor vehicles. Um, and we've, we've learned to manage and regulate that as best we can. Um, and uh, OWI fatalities have been coming down. People are becoming more responsible. Um, right now, the best numbers I could find indicate that you know, the percentage of Americans who smoke cigarettes and use marijuana is about the same. Um, and one of them we deal with through criminal penalties and one of them we deal with through taxation regulation and marketing or, or PR campaigns. Um, so if uh, marijuana was legalized, then it's something that people can use responsibly. You know, and, of course, it can be regulated. What age groups? Um, in what settings? Uh, you know, are we going to have restaurants filled with people smoking marijuana? Not likely. You can't even smoke cigarettes in restaurants. Um, you know, so, so we can put those regulations in. Um, and I apologize if I go on another tangent, but there are some, there are some benefits um, that we'll see for collateral consequences by legalizing um, drugs like marijuana. And one of those is marijuana itself has not presented uh, at least not a fatal problem. Um, however, throughout the country, they're, they're seeing more incidents of uh, marijuana laced with fentanyl, mm -hmm. which is fatal. Um, and um, we've also seen uh, other versions, uh, versions of fake marijuana that have uh, killed people. So if you're dealing with uh, really our choice, I, I think we, we believe the illusion of choice. We, we believe that what our choice is is have marijuana or not have marijuana. If we make it illegal, we won't have it. If we legalize it, we will have it. Um, and, but that's not really how it works. You know, if we make it illegal, then it's not regulated it's dealt with through criminal enterprises. Uh, when somebody you know, steals a shipment from them, they can't go to law enforcement, so they enforce those rules themselves. And, and then we see the types of carnage that we have in Mexico with uh, you know, the, uh, the cartels fighting with one another and the drug traffickers throughout the United States uh, killing one another. Yeah. And even the, the mass migrations from Central America trying to get into the United States, a lot of that is driven by the violence in Central America, which is the isthmus that brings all of the drugs from South America to the United States. Um, so there's a lot of positive collateral, um, I guess, benefits uh, that w could come about also. You know, if the government is regulating marijuana, um, you're not going to have it laced with fentanyl. Um, 
I think an argument can be made, and we've seen in other uh, areas, uh, Canada is experiencing this now, where when you tax and, and regulate, you also have an increased price. Sure. So you do still have, uh, you know, a black market, but it's it's uh, subdued quite a bit. And if you then focus your efforts on uh, combating that black market, I think you can be much more successful. I, uh, there's not really much of a black market out there for illegal alcohol in the United States, for example, um, or, or even illegal cigarettes. Um, and so it would take some time, but I, I think it would be there. So you know, now that uh, fentanyl is being introduced to a lot of other drugs um, and leading to more deaths, would we be better off regulating it? Um, and, uh, you know, I guess one of the other questions that I, I like to ask people in community settings is, you know, so I'm, I'm 49 years old. I, I've never used an illegal drug in my life, um, never had an interest. If they legalize marijuana in Wisconsin, I will still not use marijuana. Making it legal isn't going to change that for me. I'm, I quit smoking after many, many years. I dealt with addiction issues. I, I don't want to get addicted to anything else. And I'm not going to smoke cigarettes again in my life. I'm not going to smoke marijuana. I'm, I have no interest. And, and, and a lot of people don't do drugs just simply because they choose to. You know? um, and, and so I, I think that because we see those similar numbers in smoking cigarettes and, and smoking marijuana or using marijuana, I think it's just a, it's effective either way, but much less harm involved if it's not a, a criminal uh, tool. And we haven't even touched on, you know, the disparity between uh, black individuals and white individuals and arrest rates and devastation of minority communities, things of that sort, which uh, that's a whole other time. <laughs> uh, one more reason that it, it should be seriously considered. Absolutely. And I want to go back to something that you had said about, you know, legalizing it, regulating it, taxing it doesn't in and of itself eliminate the black market for marijuana sales. But if it is legal, how do you effectively concert your efforts on going after or shutting down that black market? What is your legal recourse or what legal recourse remains if the substance itself is legal? Uh, yeah, um, so they still have to follow uh, whatever laws are, are put in place there. For example, you can't start producing alcohol and then go sell it on the sidewalk. Sure. If you do, that's illegal. Um, we can come after you. Um, again, it, it doesn't mean that everybody gets to distribute it and deal with it however they want. Um, and uh, we see, we've dealt with this, I guess uh, cigarettes would be an example. Um, cigarettes have to have a tax stamp on the package reservations don't pay the federal tax on them. So we've seen uh, in the past businesses that would go to reservations, you know, back when we had the cigarette machines in particular, buy cartons of cigarettes without paying the taxes on them, sell those, and they'd get busted. Gotcha. Um, you know, there'd be stings, investigations, and we'd find them, and uh, they'd get in trouble for it. Um, and so for an individual, if you can get in trouble, you know, we do it with uh, young people in alcohol. If, if you're a bar operating illegally and you sell alcohol illegally to somebody who's 20 years old, I believe you can get up to a $10,000 fine for that now. That's a big incentive not to engage in it. So, so I, I think that's how the two come together. Would marijuana offenses that are on someone's record or that would be adjudicated today while it's still illegal be expunged if it were legalized? Would those just disappear? They wouldn't just disappear. That would have to be a separate action. Um, and I believe they did that in Colorado and California legislatively. Um, I could be mistaken about how they did it, but it is a separate action. So it's not automatic. Um, 
you know, if you violate the law that's in place at the time you violate the law, then you're convicted of it. In some of the HIDA, the high-intensity drug trafficking reports, it's indicated that there has been increases in homelessness. There have been increases in drug-related traffic incidents. What do we need to be aware of as a state, as a community, about the potential unintended consequences, the negative unintended consequences about legalizing marijuana? And is there a way to build protections into the way that's set up? Yeah, again, it's it's more of a mind uh, a shift in mindset and how we want to look at it. So, you know, we know what problems have come from other states. Uh, and again, I'd point to alcohol. Alcohol does the same thing. Um, you know, so what we have to choose again is who do we want the the people who produce and, and sell the marijuana to be? Do we want it to be the the criminal enterprises and, and the street gangs, um, or do we want it to be regulated? Um, like cigarettes and alcohol. Um, alcohol leads to a lot of mm-hmm. homelessness. Alcohol leads to a lot of traffic crashes. Um, and so I I guess I, I'm not at the level where I could run the numbers and give you a, a statistical answer of where society is better off. Sure. Um, but we can point to the data that we do have, which is the incarceration rates, the arrest rates, um, uh, the the harm that we're doing in the criminal justice system for really what seems to be a, a lost battle. Um, and I, I've seen uh, estimates, are, I think, around 65% of Americans ha- have used marijuana. Um, mm-hmm. Is that a win? <laughs> did, did we win the war on drugs? I mean, we, we kept 35% of the population from using marijuana. If that's a win, I, I think, you know, we're, we're going to have to reassess um, what we consider winning. Um, uh, but yeah, so th- those uh, collateral consequences, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I haven't looked into them, but I have no doubt that they're um, a portion of it. Part of me would wonder, I guess, uh, because there's what a twelve states that have legalized marijuana now. Uh, did you see a, a, a transient population come your way because of that? Is that going to change? Um, would it also be a peak and then a drop? Um, I'm not sure. You know, we were talking a little bit about Portugal before, and maybe we can go back and look at Portugal as a model. Um, you know, so um, Portugal, back in 2001, uh, decriminalized all personal use drugs. Um, and uh, they did that because they were dealing with um, a crisis, uh, is what they uh, called it. Uh, they were dealing with a crisis with overdose deaths. They had gone from being a dictatorship to a democracy overnight. Uh, the borders opened. Everything started becoming available, including drugs. And they had this problem with overdose deaths. And so they pulled this council together, and they said, you know, how do we best address this drug issue? Um, you know, and again, this is back in 2001. Um, and the council said, uh, you know, you should, you should decriminalize all personal use drugs. And the United States wrote a letter saying, you know, essentially you're, you're idiots. You're going <laughs> to destroy our war on drugs. Don't you know we're at war? Um, and uh, several European Union countries also said, what are you doing? You're going to become, you know, this haven for, for drug addicts. Um, and, and let's fast forward to 2017. And in their country of 10.3 million people, they had 51 overdose deaths. Oh, wow. So that's five overdose deaths per million people. Um, we're at 247. So if, if we could repeat 
Portugal's success in this country by decriminalizing um, personal use drugs across the board. And I don't know that we could because America is uh, an animal all unto itself. I mean, we're, we are a unique <laughs> group. Um, but if we could, that would take our 81,000 overdose deaths from last year and reduce it to 1,640. Now, I remind you again that every criminal justice professional at some point in the last few years has said, we cannot arrest, prosecute, and incarcerate our way out of this problem. Portugal found a way to do something different. They, they decided to treat it like Oregon is now treating it. They're trying to destigmatize the problem, much like alcohol. You can go in and get help for alcohol. You can go tell your employer that you're, you know, you're suffering from an addiction to alcohol and you need to get help. And there's employee assistance programs that will help you. And there's an entire infrastructure and, and network of treatment facilities that can help you. Um, and it's okay. All of us, at least in Wisconsin, know somebody who's been addicted to alcohol. Um, and uh, we don't look down on them. We just want them to get better. But we look down on people who, who become addicted to drugs. Um, and, and they can't maintain their employment. You know, they get fired. Um, you know, what if we did treat other addictive substances like we treat alcohol. Um, you know, in Portugal, uh, several other uh, cities and, and countries in the European Union are, are now looking at the Portugal model and it's being held up as this uh, exemplary model of, of how to change course in this uh, failed war on drugs. Um, so, I don't know, you know, which way should you deal with it? I guess it depends on, on what you think is right. You know, should we should we lock people up for uh, what I think most people agree is a health problem, uh, a medical problem? Um, you know, and you could take the argument even farther. You know, why are drugs illegal? Well, because they're harmful to you. Um, so if you use drugs, they're harmful to you. So is sugar. Yeah. And red meat. You know, we had prohibition. Why did we stop prohibition? Um, all the same arguments um, you know, for prohibition apply to drugs. And right now, 95,000 dead from alcohol, 81,000 dead from opioids, and fentanyl is what we see killing people here. You know, when you used to be able to buy heroin from your pharmacist, mm -hmm. your pharmacist didn't lace your heroin with fentanyl. <laughs> <laughs> your, your pharmacist also didn't take the position that, you know, he or she should try to get you addicted to the drug. You know, they discouraged you from using it. Um, and, you know, the, the black market on drugs is different. You know, they're trying to get kids addicted so that they have customers for life. And if they kill some people along the way, you know, they've done the math. And if they add some fentanyl and more people get addicted and they lose a few along the way, no big deal to them. Um, but it is a big deal to all of us. Yeah. Uh, so maybe we should be in charge of it. We've mostly been talking about this somewhat in abstracts, but also as it relates to adults typically. Um, but like you said before, there would be a legal age. So if marijuana is legalized in Wisconsin, there would be a legal age. In most other states, I believe it's 21. Um, as you also mentioned, the legal age for alcohol is 21, but alcohol still gets into the hands of minors. Um, it still causes issues with minors. It still leads to problems, whether it's student athletes or people who just, for whatever way, shape, or form, develop an addiction or a dependence on that substance, this alcohol, marijuana, what have you. As parents, as community members, as business leaders, anyone who's listening to this discussion, what do we need to know or consider when it comes to talking to, educating, preparing our youth for 
legalized marijuana, not only in all the states surrounding us, but in our state, in our home, in terms of perception of harm and decision-making. The best thing we can do is be role models. Um, kids pay attention to what we do, and, and they're going to uh, mimic the behavior they see. Um, and uh, you know, I had mentioned that I, I used to smoke, and I finally quit, and, and it was because of having a child and not wanting them to be exposed to that throughout their life and, um, and also wanting to live to, to see more of their life. Um, uh, you know, but I, I think taking that away, you know, we know that kids who grew up in households where smoking is, is uh, present are more inclined to smoke. Uh, same thing with uh, drinking. So, uh, you know, I think being the role model, having the conversations and, and having honest conversations about it. Well, and hopefully more people have conversations that maybe they weren't having before and discuss those real life situations. One thing we hear from people in the community that we talk to from kids to people in recovery um, who maybe started using substances around that 13, 14, 15 years old, like you're saying, just say no isn't effective. Um, It wasn't an effective campaign when it was launched. It's not an effective campaign now. And taking the opportunity to have those real-life discussions with your kids, age-appropriately and developmentally appropriate, of course, but have those real-life discussions, discuss those real-life scenarios so that when they find themselves in them, if they find themselves in them, they have that mental space where they know how to react instead of just being like, oh, crap, what do I do now? Deer in the headlights, peer pressure, all of those things. Yeah, and, and I think everybody wants to think that their kid isn't going to be the one who you know, tries marijuana. Or oh, tries sure. Drugs, but uh, again, 65% of you are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting, and you read surveys, you read parent surveys that say, no, my kid wouldn't try drugs, but then you read children's surveys or youth surveys where clearly they have. Um, So it's an interesting kind of balance between parents who, you know, the it's not my kid or parents who don't want to talk about it or don't feel comfortable talking about it because they feel on some level if they say, hey, Christian, what are you talking to your kid about? Because, you know, our kids are the same age and I feel like I should be talking about this or I found some THC vape cartridges in his room the other day. Like, how are you handling this? It's almost like an admission of failure as a parent. And to your point of reducing stigma, like having a child who uses substances doesn't mean you're failing as a parent. And, and talking about it, you know, I, I want my child to know they can talk to me about anything. Yeah. Um, and part of that is that I have to make sure that I talk to them about anything. Um, because if I do, then that makes everything okay to talk about. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm a prosecutor. I, I have a doctoral degree in law. Um, nothing to do with raising children. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I, I had to smile a little bit because I go talk to my friends who are social workers and educators um, and uh, deal with troubled youth. Um, and I get my advice on, on what to do from them because I, I recognize that this is not my forte. Children are, are just young adults in training. And uh, whatever we don't talk to them about, somebody else is going to. Um, and I'd rather be the one having the conversations. And, and so far, it seems to be working pretty well. We have some awkward conversations sometimes, <laughs> um, but I, I make them all okay. They're all fair game, and they're all good things to talk about. Um, and I try to take away the stigma. Um, and, and you're, but you're absolutely right. You know, if the first time that they end up having a conversation about drugs is with a good friend who's selling drugs, that conversation is not going to go the way I want it to. 
Well, again, thank you so much for taking time to discuss this issue with us. I look forward to more discussions in the future and seeing where all of this goes. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to share? I don't think so. I think we've uh, covered a lot. Thank you.